All right, welcome back. Welcome back to the room. Thank you guys for being here today. Uh, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 15. A few years ago, we started working through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is a quick, fast-paced gospel. Uh, he covers uh, one of his favorite words, if you track throughout the Gospel of Mark, is the word immediately. Everything is action-oriented, and it happens really quick, immediately, immediately, immediately. We started working through the Gospel of Mark uh, two and a half years ago. We covered chapters uh, one through eight, uh, the first go-around, and then we uh, suspended it for the, until the next year, and then we covered... Uh, chapters 9 through uh, 14 last uh, throughout last year and then into last summer. And then um, with Easter two weeks away from today. Can you believe that? Um, Easter Sunday a year ago, uh, we just met separately, everybody in their own houses and living rooms. And we just recorded sermons like everybody did during that weird time. And, and so this will be a, a two-year delayed Easter corporate gathering. I'm already looking forward to it. And, uh, and so we're time in a timely way picking up with Mark chapter 15 and getting right into uh, the crucifixion over the next few weeks and the resurrection as well. This morning, uh, we're picking up where we left off uh, at the end of chapter 14, right with chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 20. Uh, let me invite you to read along with me. If you're new to the Bible, um, Mark is uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. They're called Gospels, the four books that focus on Jesus' life. And um, if you if you can make your way, uh, in Psalms, typically if you open your Bible right to the middle, you it'll just open up to Psalms. And if you make a right turn, about 24 books or so, little prophets, uh, you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, uh, and that's where we're at this morning. Mark chapter 15. So let's read our passage together. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him up to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. 
And they called together the whole battalion, about 600 soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we recall the final days of your life, the return into Jerusalem, the teaching, the miracles, the confrontations, the cleansing of the temple, the preparations for the Last Supper, the upper room, the washing of the feet, the praying with your disciples, the triumph of that night overshadowed as you entered the garden in great agony, praying, drops of blood, asking the Father if there was another way to make it known, surrendering your own will to the will of the Father. We thank you that in all those ways, as we remember, we acknowledge that you remember uh, those details well. My prayer all week has been, what do you want to say to your people gathered here that you have redeemed by your own body and your own blood about your experience with Pontius Pilate and Barabbas as you entered into those that time of crucifixion? What would you have us to leave here? What would you impress upon us and have us understand so that we may know you so that we may love you, so that we may love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, so that we may leave here encouraged in our faith, understanding you in a greater way. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, by your Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and our guide and our counselor, our paraclete, the helper. We pray that you would use this for your glory and your majesty. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Jesus wasn't surprised by the cross. He wasn't surprised by the rejection. He wasn't at all surprised of what was going to happen to him. We learned way back uh, when Jesus came down off the Mount of Transfiguration that he told his disciples that we're going to Jerusalem. Uh, John says that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He understood what was going to happen to him. He predicted it. He even acknowledged and said, no one can follow me unless they take up my cross and, and, and carry their cross and follow me. Uh, all these things indicated that Jesus had a clear understanding of what was coming. He had a clear understanding that, that this would take place. And yet as the drama is unfolding, I don't know if you ever, some people read books like this. They'll, they'll buy a book and they'll get into it a little bit and then they'll flip over to the end and then they'll read the last chapter or the last, they can't wait, right? The, the suspense builds, they can't wait. So they'll read the end of the book and then they'll go back and fill in the details. Um, the gospel is kind of like that. Jesus, we understand what's going to happen. We understand what's going to take place. We have a clear understanding, but, but watching how the events unfold, 
world doesn't take away from the fact that we already know how it's going to end. I mean, you see the way in which all the characters and all the events and all the details are woven together in this story that help us understand uh, in greater detail what Jesus was going through, knowing that he already knew the end and everything that was taking, that was going to take place. We have to assume that it was, as Hebrew says, for the joy set before him, that he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father after the resurrection and ascension. But here we are, we find ourselves transported back into the very um, drama of events that are unfolding, leading to the cross. And in those first five verses, we have to acknowledge that a trial has already happened. They were already, they spent the night with Jesus. After he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the the soldiers had come to arrest him. Uh, Jesus had um, given himself up actually to them. And they uh, came down uh, across the Kidron Valley um, and uh, from the Mount of Olives through the valley and up into Jerusalem across town through the, the, the south gate that the uh, the Kidron Valley there, over into the high priest compound where there was a prison in the basement with a, a roof built into the upper level floor where the high priest could look down on prisoners and interrogate them as a judge of Israel without touching a criminal, thereby warranting himself unclean before he made the Passover sacrifice. All that was taking place. They needed a quorum. They needed 23 members of the the Supreme Court of Israel, the ruling officials, in order to make a hasty judgment that night. Now listen, in their uh, judgment, we learned in verse 1 there that the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. They had to get the rest of the 72 members of the council all together early that Friday morning so that they could com- complete the check the box of Jewish law. If someone was worthy of death, they couldn't just convene in one night. They had to have a second day in which they were able to rule on that capital punishment. And even then, they couldn't... D- carry out the punishment themselves. They had to have Rome do it. So all of these things are having to happen at a very rapid pace. They had to get 23 together um, on the Friday night. They had to get um, false testimony. They had to get the traitor. They had to get the soldiers. They had to get um, everyone up to the mountain, uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus and to bring him back and to get the, the 23 members there. Annas, the father of the high priest, had to examine Jesus. Then Caiaphas, the high priest, had to examine Jesus without touching him in, in, in irony so that he would wouldn't be unclean. He's going to kill the Son of God, but he doesn't want to be um, ritually unclean, so he doesn't touch him. Witnesses had to be found and convinced and paid to give false testimony about Jesus on the spot. Tensions are high. Jerusalem, normally a town of about a quarter of a million people, has swelled to over uh, 1,250,000 people, all coming from all parts of the world for the Passover feast that would be celebrated the very next day as the high priest made the offering. 
all of these things, if you've ever tried to get four kids out the door dressed with clothes on, right? Shoes on, without something on. Have you ever tried to get a kid out the door and they can't find a shoe or they can't find a, something and you're trying to scream? Imagine how difficult it would be to put all these details together in order for Jesus, in order for everything to work like clockwork, in order for everything to come together just so that he could be uh, delivered over in this way. We have insight for that in Acts chapter 2 when Peter has preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are responding to the gospel. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, listen closely, Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of of God. This didn't catch anybody uh, by surprise. Uh, God was not surprised. Jesus was not surprised. This was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Pilate and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes and the soldiers, everybody that you see in here is just a character in the unfolding drama of redemption. We're introduced here to Pilate. Mark condenses his account. Um, he actually sees Pilate first, then he goes to Herod, then he comes back to Pilate, and there's lengthy interviews in Matthew and Luke and John, but Mark condenses it all in these first few verses, and he just gets right to Pilate and right to the condemnation. It, just so that you understand things about Pilate, Pilate was a Roman puppet, a governor, a soldier in some ways, meant to come and keep peace in a very uh, difficult, pressure, um, hotbed where tensions were high. Matter of fact, the first thing Pilate did when he um, arrived at his new post, maybe a decade before this event this day, he only lasted 10 years in Israel. One of the very first things he did was he moved into Herod's palace in Jerusalem and immediately he began to put shields up with Roman soldiers and Roman gods and Roman things all over the, all over the, the, um, the, the palace. And immediately, once that got out, uh, zealous religious Jews gathered around and began to protest for days. They stayed on site and shouted and protested and were on the verge of rioting, And so, so much so that Pilate had to leave Jerusalem and go back to Caesarea Maritime where his governing headquarters were. And the Jews were so angry, they followed him. And for a number of days, they stayed there until he was so sick of it and the tension was so high, he invited them all to the amphitheater where just enough soldiers were surrounding it and he threatened them at spear tip, at, at, uh, at the threat of death, break this up or you're going to die. And the Jews said, kill us. We don't care. We won't tolerate your idols in, our, in, our, uh, in Jerusalem. He immediately compromised and realized what was at stake here? Rome wanted peace, and they wanted tribute, and they wanted all those things, but Israel was unique. It was different. And so that gives us understanding into who Pilate was and what he was dealing with in this particular situation so many years later. He ruled, but he ruled with fear that the mob would take over, that he had to appease the crowds as he tried to kind of play this game. 
So he begins to question Jesus, and even in his unrighteousness, Pilate still has a sense of righteousness. He questions Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? That's the only charge they could give him. By the way, that phrase is only really used in this portion of the four gospels about Jesus as the king of the Jews. But this was the charge they brought before him because the the Jewish council couldn't crucify Jesus. Only the Romans could do that. So they had to find a charge that would be appealing to Pilate that would rival King Caesar, Emperor Caesar. So he asked them, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus doesn't say anything. And Pilate is amazed by this. I don't think Pilate's probably ever had somebody who at the threat of Roman crucifixion didn't say anything. Jesus knew what crucifixion was. They would crucify hundreds of people on public roads. They would cry out in agony as people doing business in marketplaces would walk by. They would see people crucified, and it was the threat not to mess with Rome. Right? You drive through Texas, there's signs everywhere, don't mess with Texas. Right? The crucifixion was the Roman version of that. You saw Roman crucifixes up and down streets and roadways telling you not to mess with Rome. And here's Jesus, uh, knowing what's about to be happened, doesn't give an answer. Doesn't that remind you of a verse? What does Isaiah 53.3 say? That, that like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he made no reply. He didn't speak in return. Look at verse 6. At the feast, they used to release for them one prisoner for whom the crowd asked. And among all the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the resurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So here we're introduced to a guy named Barabbas who was guilty, who had committed murder, who this was his day of, this was his death row sentence, and he knew that today was the day. And so in order to keep peace in Jerusalem, uh, Pilate would often just give them a, a political captive, just release him if it would keep the crowds at peace. And so they, they took him up on that offer annually, and this year they requested Barabbas. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do that. And he began to answer them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Even in another version, another gospel, Pilate's own wife says, have nothing to do with that righteous man. I've suffered in a dream all night as a result of him. Have nothing to do with him. Pilate's doing everything he can. Something unusual is happening here. He knows it's out of envy. He's been warned by his wife. Pilate has probably interviewed thousands of, judged thousands of common criminals and insurrectionists and rebels and people who are trying to attack Rome and people who are trying to attack the Roman occupation and Roman soldiers. He is not, this is not his first go around, but something's different about Jesus. He gets it. He gets it. But he keeps asking, what do you want me to do about the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with him? Shall I crucify your king? And in another version, they say, we have no king but Caesar. They're, they're um, spurring the tension on in the crowd. The, the chief priests and the rulers, they're trying to get everybody amped up. And eventually, verse 15, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. Then he scourged Jesus, which is beating him with a whip and delivered him over to be crucified. He, his name slipped in on the agenda and Barabbas' name was removed. 
The cross that was meant for Barabbas was all of a sudden transferred and, and given to Jesus, and they put a sign on it. Maybe there it used to be a sign called Barabbas. Now maybe there's a new sign. Barabbas, who was in the insurrection and committed murder, now the, they've cleaned that out. Now there's a new sign. Jesus, the King of the Jews, He has been substituted for Barabbas. Have you ever wondered about Barabbas? Have you ever wondered what happened to him? We have no other record of him in the rest of the New Testament. I always wished I would see his name in a subtle name list in Acts somewhere. And Barabbas, part of the, you know, the house church, gathered for prayer, worship, something like that. No, he's nowhere. He's nowhere else. Did he live a long life? What did he do with his second chance? Did he have uh, children? Did he have grandchildren? Did he tell them the story of how there was a day that he was substituted? Did he come to know Jesus ever? Did they, did they know each other by faith? Did he come to know him? Did he exchange eyes with him or make a glance toward him as one was being imprisoned and the other was being released? I remember the scene from Saving Private Ryan, if you've ever seen that movie. All these soldiers come together to rescue this one guy. I'm going to spoil the movie for you. But if you haven't seen it, it's like 20 years old, so, you know. I don't feel too bad in being a movie spoiler here, but, but all these guys are risking their life and dying to save this guy, Private Ryan. And on the last bridge, right before he dies, they say, you better earn this, right? We're all dying for you, so you go live your life and you earn it. You live your life in such a way, I think Tom Hanks even says at one point, he better invent like a longer lasting life bulb, light bulb or something. But you do something worthwhile with your life. And this painful scene at the very end of the movie is he's bowed down in front of the, the tombs of all these soldiers who gave their life for him as an older man. He's just weeping saying, tell me I've lived a good enough life. Now tell me I've done something worthwhile in my life to have paid for all the people who died for me. I wonder if Barabbas had a similar sentiment. Tell me I've done something worthy that this king of kings died for me, that he took my place literally. What did he do with his second chance of life? Barabbas is a compound name. Bar means son. And Abba, what does Abba mean? Abba means father, right? Bar Abbas, that's his name, a son of a father. Barabbas, a son of a father, was exchanged for the son of the father. And he gives us a perfect picture of substitutionary atonement. A son of a father could be any of us. A daughter of a father, a son of a daughter. Any of us could have fit in Barabbas' place. He was guilty. He committed murder. He was, he was caught red-handed and on the, I don't know if he had his last meal, if they read him his last rites. I don't know if he you know, went through his last, you know, I don't know what they did on the day of crucifixion, but he knew that this was his day to be crucified in front of millions of people gathering into Jerusalem for this special day. And, and he he's got out of it. Jesus substituted himself for him, and Jesus was sinless, not worthy, hadn't committed any sin, not, not murder. Jesus was innocent, and Pilate knew it. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the substitution that took place. 
Any of us could have been a Barabbas. Any of us could have been tried in the court of God for the sins that we had committed against him. And yet Jesus willingly, lovingly endured that substitution and gave himself for Barabbas. And not just for him, but for, according to John 3.16, he gave himself for the sins of the world because he loved us. Let's look at verse 16. Um, the soldiers led him away inside the palace. So he's, he's transferred. Um, he, he's, he's been held by the religious leaders. They delivered him over to Pilate. Now he's in the hands of a battalion, 600 Roman soldiers, not Jewish citizens, um, grown up and raised up some other part of the empire, stationed in Jerusalem. They have zero regard for Jewish law, Jewish temples, Jewish sacrifices, nothing. But they have an, uh, an hour or so with Jesus, um, and they lead him away into the palace. That's the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. So they gathered everybody, and they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him. They began to mock him in this way. It struck me the time that it takes to do this. Uh, in 1990-something, I was on spring break in North Arkansas. We used to rent a cabin and me and 10 other guys from college would go fly fishing and trout fishing at the White River, this beautiful spot in northern Arkansas. And um, we would hike around and go into caves and get just hang out and enjoy a week off. And, um, uh, and, and, and in the course of doing that, I was meditating. This was right around this sort of same time of year in my personal quiet times I was reading through these, um, these, uh, this, this time of Jesus and the trials and this crucifixion and all that. And when I got to this passage, I remember seeing on the hiking trail, um, some serious thorn bushes with some three, four inch thorns. And I, and just, I wanted to try it. So I went out there and I, I cut away some pieces and I began to try to weave together a crown of thorns that would roughly fit a head. And you know what I noticed? Two things in particular. One, it took me over an hour. It took me a long time to put together a crown of thorns. But the second thing I noticed is it destroyed my hands, my arms. Everything was cut to shreds. These soldiers worked hard at this to torture Jesus in such a way that they went out of their way to do all of these things to him in a mocking, rejecting way, clothing him in purple, which was the, the color of a king, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, saluting him, hailing him as king of the Jews, verse 19, grabbing a reed and, and striking his head with it on top of the crown of thorns, spitting on him, kneeling down in homage to him. They mocked him, verse 20, and then they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes back on him and they led him out to crucify him. At this point, Jesus is not even recognizable. Isaiah 53 says he was marred beyond human recognition. Already been scourged on his back already bleeding, crown of thorns, just unrecognizable as a human being, likely. Seeing all this in detail just gives us such a, a sympathy and a hurt for what Jesus endured in that event. And yet, He willingly did it. <clears throat> in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 52, it's worth reading. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13, and Isaiah 53, all the way through verse 12. I'll just read some of these parts, because 700 years before any of this happened, Jesus would have known these verses. 
This was long known that this was going to take place, but listen to how accurate it is. Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human recognition, his form was beyond that of the children of man. That's describing the punishment that he took. So he shall sprinkle many nations and kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, they shall see, and that which they have not heard, they shall understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him as one stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Doesn't that sound just like that? 1 Peter 2, 24 passage. Same language, the same same sheep language that we've gone astray, and he laid on Jesus in his body on the tree, the sin of all of us. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was cut off. They made his grave with the wicked, although he had done no violence and no deceit was in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you and I. And he shall bear their iniquities because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered along with the sinners, the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus would do? 700 years before he did it, inaccuracy depicting what would happen in that day. As we close, one sort of application point from this passage is what will you do with the king of the Jews? I talked about king of the Jews. It's clustered in this section of scripture. In verse 2, 9, 12, 18, and 26 of Mark 15, five times in this short section. Also in Mark, uh, I mean, sorry, also in Luke, also in John. Matthew 2, one other place is mentioned. When the Magi come and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You really only find them a few places, but but Israel and kings. This is not a this is not a surprise. Israel was designed to be a, what's called a theocracy, a nation ruled by God, with God as its king, with God as its king, and with men as mediators, like Moses, uh, mediating between God and man. And this was how Israel was supposed to be. You see, before the theocracy, Abraham in Genesis 14 encounters a curious 
king, right? A guy named Melchizedek. Melchizedek. In Genesis 14, Melchi is the Hebrew word for king. Zedek is the word for righteousness. Um, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, ruled over an area uh, right where Jerusalem was, and it was called Salem, which means peace. So the king of righteousness ruled uh, the area called the king of peace, and he... um, when Abraham met him, Abraham gave him a tenth of all the spoils and worshipped him in a way. And listen to what um, Melchizedek brings out. Genesis fourteen eighteen, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brings out bread and wine and served as the priest of God Most High. Even to Abraham, the beginning of Israel, a kingship, a king of righteousness, the king of peace, bringing out bread and wine. What does all that remind you of? We remember every time we take the Lord's Supper, we serve bread and juice, not wine, but you know, we serve the elements. And this is a reminder that, that there will always be a king of righteousness and a king of peace and that we will celebrate. Um, even in this same area where Jesus might have even been crucified. Later, um, Abraham would be called to sacrifice his own son and he would be delivered to a mountain in which God would show him in that same area, that same place, in that same region. The, he takes his son Isaac up on the mountain. He's about to sacrifice him and, and he looks up and there's a ram caught in a thicket and the lamb becomes the sacrifice for the son. In the same way that Barabbas was a son of a father and the sacrifice came right through. It just could have even been on the same peak in the same area. Amazing. After the patriarchs, Israel was to be this theocracy established by God at Mount Sinai through Moses, the mediator. But they did what? They rejected God's kingship. It was predicted in Deuteronomy 17 that they would reject God as king It was fulfilled in 1 Samuel 8, verses 4 through 7 says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. Listen to what the Lord said. Hundreds of years before Jesus, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You hear the the shadows of what Jesus would fulfill? The rejection, the man of sorrows, the beatings, the crucifixions, not just in the Old Testament um, history sections, but also in the prophets. You think of Hosea, who was called to marry someone who would um, cheat on him and would reject him and would walk away from him. And, And God, picturing himself as a loving, faithful husband, would pursue Israel in the way that Hosea was called to pursue Gomer in the prophets. And Isaiah predicted this, Isaiah 52, 53, that we just read. The final thing here is that the Jews rejected the king. They rejected Jesus. They said, give us, we'll take a murderer. We'll take a murderer over the king of the Jews. That's how deep sin embeds itself in our lives. John says that men loved darkness and they flee from the light. We all have a hand in rejecting the king. Pilate rejected the king. The soldiers rejected the king. Herod rejected the king. All of us have a part. Romans 1 says that no man is without excuse. That God has made himself known. In Romans 1.18 he says, God has made himself known 
And we have suppressed the truth by our own unrighteousness. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now listen, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it known to them. God has made himself known clearly. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. That, that God has made himself known for all people. But we suppress the truth of God because of the unrighteous way that we live. God's eternal attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that all people are without excuse. For although they had knowledge of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is us. You don't have to be in the crowd shouting Barabbas and crucify him. This is just us. In our human nature, we reject the king just like they did. But Jesus won't be rejected. Jesus will be crowned the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So again, I ask, what will you do with the King of the Jews? What will you do with the King? Pilate asked, what will we do with the King of the Jews? It's a question that's not just relevant for a crowd. It's, it's for you individually. What will you do with the King of the Jews? What will you do with Jesus? He will be, he is crowned king. Colossians says that he is uh, reigning supreme over all things. God put all things under his feet. Revelation 17 says that the kings of the earth will, in the end times, make war on the Lamb of God, that's Jesus, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and then those of us who are with him will be called chosen and faithful. Uh, Philippians 2 we have this great hymn of the early church where it describes Jesus in his humility that even though he was, um, um, even though he was um, in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, but he made himself nothing. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as a result of his humiliation and his sacrifice and lowering himself to the lowest point, verse 9 of Philippians 2 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now listen. That includes everybody, those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. That includes Pilate, that includes Herod, that includes the chief priests, that includes the battalion, the dude who twisted the thorns together, the one who grabbed the reed, the one who made the linen purple thing, and everybody, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, every person will have to answer the question, what will you do with, with King Jesus? All of us. There won't be a single one at the day of judgment that will have to wiggle out of that, that question in any way. But the question isn't, will you acknowledge Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? That's not the question. The question is, when will you do it? You're going to do it either 
when you die, or you're going to, you have an opportunity to do it before you die. Isn't that the beauty? It's a, it's mercy. It's God saying, I'm sending a peace offering, a truce to you. You don't have to die as an enemy, rejecting God, the King. You don't have to die as an enemy. I can, I'm offering you an opportunity to become one of my adopted children, to become, uh, to come into my presence, to have a restored relationship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. That's, that's the way in which you do that. You can, you can reject him and live the rest of your life stiff-arming God, keeping at, at a distance, allowing yourself to rule your life, to be the own king or queen of your own life, making your own decisions, making your own calls, rejecting Jesus' sacrifice. Or you can humbly bow the knee and ask him for forgiveness and mercy, accepting the grace that he gave you in the cross and the new life that he promises. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can even be transported right back into this place in which we can be transported right back into this place in which we find ourselves as a spectator in the dry, sandy Jerusalem area in which we can just in our mind's eye even put ourselves there. Jesus, where would we have been? Would we have been a, one of those rejecting you? Would we have been one of those following you? There weren't many at that time. But, but yet after the resurrection, more and more people begin to receive the offer of grace that you gave. And we, we worship you for that. That here we are 2,000 years later still talking about this. Still offering the offer of peace that you provided through Jesus Christ to people around the world. We praise you for that opportunity. We praise you that the gospel is still relevant even today, that it has not grown stale. The offer has not expired. There is no expiration date other than the day of our death, and none of us know that day. Would you call those to yourself to make peace with you and to yield, with, to, yield to your lordship today? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.